Section 9 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Anguillette by the Countess de Murat. Translated by James Planchet. Anguillette, Part 1. To whatever greatness destiny may elevate those it favours, there is no worldly felicity exempt from serious sorrow. One cannot be acquainted with fairies and be ignorant that the most skilful amongst them have failed to discover a charm which would secure them from the misfortune of being compelled to change their shape some few days in every month for that of some animal, terrestrial, celestial, or aquatic. During that dangerous period, when they are completely at the mercy of mankind, they have frequently great difficulty in saving themselves from the perils to which that stern necessity exposes them. One amongst them, who had changed herself into an eel, was unfortunately taken by fishermen and flung immediately into a small square tank in the midst of a beautiful meadow, wherein they kept the fish that were daily required for the table of the king of that country. Anguillette, so was the fairy named, found in her new abode a great many fine fish, destined like herself to live but a few hours. She had heard the fishermen say to one another that that very evening the king proposed to give a grand banquet, for the which these fine fish had been carefully selected. What tidings for the unfortunate fairy! She accused the fates of cruelty a thousand times. She sighed most sadly, but after hiding herself for some time at the very bottom of the water, in order to bewail her misfortune in solitude, the desire to escape, if possible, from so urgent a peril induced her to look about her in every direction, to see if she could not by some means get out of the reservoir, and regain the river, which ran at no great distance from that spot. But the fairy looked in vain. The tank was too deep for her to hope to get out of it without help, and her distress was augmented by seeing the fishermen who had taken her again approaching. They began to throw in their nets, and Anguillette, by avoiding them with great cunning, retarded for a few moments the death that awaited her. The youngest of the king's daughters was walking at that time in the meadow. She approached the tank to amuse herself by seeing the men fish. The sun about to set shone brilliantly on the water. The skin of Anguillette, which was very glossy, glittered in its rays as if partly gilt, and of all the colours of the rainbow. The young princess caught sight of her, and thinking her exceedingly beautiful, ordered the fisherman to try and catch that eel for her. They obeyed, and the unfortunate fairy was speedily placed in the hands of the person who would decide her fate. When the princess had contemplated Anguillette for a few moments, she was touched with compassion, and running to the riverside, put her gently into the water. This unexpected service filled the fairy's heart with gratitude. She appeared on the surface and said to the princess, I owe you my life, generous Plusine, such was her name, but it is most fortunate for you that I do so. Be not afraid, she continued, observing the young princess about to run away, I am a fairy, and will prove the truth of my words by heaping an infinite number of favours upon you. As people were accustomed in those days to behold fairies, Plusine recovered from her first alarm, and listened with great attention to the agreeable promises of Anguillette. 
She even began to answer her, but the fairy interrupting her, said, Wait till you have profited by my favour before you express your acknowledgments. Go, young princess, and return to this spot to-morrow morning. Think in the meantime what you would wish for, and whatever it may be, I will grant it. You may, at your choice, possess the most perfect and bewitching beauty, the finest and most charming intellect, or incalculable riches. After these words, Anguillette sank to the bottom of the river, and left Plucine highly gratified with her adventure. She determined not to tell anyone what had befallen her, for, said she to herself, if Anguillette should deceive me, my sisters would believe that I invented this story. After this little reflection, she hastened to rejoin her suite, which was composed of only a few ladies. She found them looking for her. The young Plucine was occupied all the succeeding night in thinking what should be her choice. Beauty almost turned the scale, but as she had sufficient sense to desire still more, she finally determined to request that favour of the fairy. She rose with the sun and ran to the meadow under the pretence of gathering flowers to make a garland, as she said, to present to the queen, her mother, at her levee. Her attendants dispersed themselves about the meadow to cull the freshest and most beautiful of the flowers with which it was everywhere enamelled. Meanwhile, the young princess hastened to the riverside and found, upon the spot where she had seen the fairy, a column of white marble of the most perfect purity. An instant afterwards, the column opened and the fairy emerged from it and appeared to the princess no longer as a fish, but as a tall and beautiful woman of majestic demeanour and whose robes and headdress were covered with jewels. I am Anguillette, said she to the young princess, who gazed upon her with great attention. I come to fulfil my promise. You have chosen intellectual perfection, and you shall possess it from this very moment. You shall have so much sense as to be envied by those who, till now, have flattered themselves they were specially endowed with it. The youthful Plucine, at these words, felt a considerable alteration taking place in her mind. She thanked the fairy with an eloquence that till then she had been a stranger to. The fairy smiled at the astonishment the princess could not conceal at her own powers of expression. I am so much pleased with you, said the benignant Anguillette, for making the choice you have done in lieu of preferring beauty of person, which has such charms for one of your sex and age, that to reward you I will add the gift of that loveliness you have so prudently foregone. Return hither to-morrow at the same hour. I give you till then to choose the style of beauty you would possess. The fairy disappeared, and left the young Plucine still more impressed with her good fortune. Her choice of superior intellect was dictated by reason, but the promise of surpassing beauty flattered her heart, and that which touches the heart is always felt most deeply. On quitting the riverside, the princess took the flowers presented to her by her attendants, and made a very tasteful garland with them, which she carried to the queen. But what was her majesty's astonishment, that of the king, and of all the court, to hear Plucine speak with an elegance and a fluency which captivated every heart. The princesses, her sisters, vainly endeavoured to contest her mental superiority. They were compelled to wonder at and admire it. Night came. The princess, occupied with the expectation of becoming beautiful, instead of retiring to rest, passed into a cabinet hung with portraits, in which, under the form of goddesses, were represented several of the queens and princesses of her family. All these were beauties, and she indulged a hope 
that they would assist her in deciding on a style of beauty worthy to be solicited from a fairy. The first that met her sight was a Juno. She was fair, and had a presence such as should distinguish the queen of the gods. Pallas and Venus stood beside her. The subject of the picture was the judgment of Paris. The noble haughtiness of Pallas excited the admiration of the young princess, but the loveliness of Venus almost decided her choice. Nevertheless, she passed on to the next picture, in which was seen Pomona reclining on a couch of turf beneath trees laden with the finest fruits in the world. She appeared so charming that the princess, who since morning had become acquainted with all their stories, was not surprised that a god had taken various forms in order to please her. Diana next appeared, attired as the poets represent her, the quiver slung behind her, and the bow in her hand. She was pursuing a stag, and followed by a numerous band of nymphs. Flora attracted her attention a little further off. She appeared to be walking in a garden, the flowers of which, although exquisite, could not be compared to the bloom of her complexion. Next came the graces, beautiful and enchanting. This picture was the last in the room. But the princess was struck by that which was over the mantelpiece. It was the goddess of youth. A heavenly air was shed over her whole person. Her tresses were the fairest in the world. The turn of her head was most graceful, her mouth charming, her figure perfectly beautiful, and her eyes appeared much more likely to intoxicate than the nectar with which she seemed to be filling a cup. I will wish, exclaimed the young princess, after she had contemplated with delight this lovely portrait, I will wish to be as beautiful as Hebe, and to remain so as long as possible. After this determination, she returned to her bedchamber, where the day she awaited seemed to her impatience as if it would never dawn. At length it came, and she hastened again to the riverside. The fairy kept her word. She appeared, and threw a few drops of water in the face of Plusine who became immediately as beautiful as she had desired to be. Some sea-gods had accompanied the fairy. Their applause was the first effect produced by the charms of the fortunate Plusine. She looked at her image in the water, and could not recognise herself. Her silence and her astonishment were for the moment the only indications of her thankfulness. "'I have fulfilled all your wishes,' said the generous fairy. "'You ought to be content. But I shall not be so,' if my favours do not far exceed your desires. In addition to the wit and beauty I have endowed you with, I bestow on you all the treasures at my disposal. They are inexhaustible. You have but to wish, whenever you please, for infinite wealth, and at the same moment you will acquire it, not only for yourself, but for all those you may deem worthy to possess it. The fairy disappeared, and the youthful Plusine, now as lovely as Hebe, returned to the palace. Everybody who met her was enchanted. They announced her arrival to the king, who was himself lost in admiration of her, and it was only by her voice and her talent that they recognised the amiable princess. She informed the king that a fairy had bestowed all those precious gifts upon her, and she was no longer called anything but Hebe, in consequence of her perfect resemblance to the portrait of that goddess. What new causes were here to engender the hatred of her sisters against her? The beauties of her mind had excited their jealousy much less than those of her person. All the princes who had been attracted by their charms became faithless to them, without the least hesitation. In like manner were all the other court beauties abandoned by their admirers. 
no tears or reproaches could stop the flight of those inconstant lovers and this conduct which then appeared so singular has since it is said become a common custom hebe inflamed all hearts around her while her own remained insensible notwithstanding the hatred her sisters evinced towards her she neglected nothing that she thought might please them she wished for so much wealth for the eldest and to wish and to give were the same thing to her that the greatest sovereign in that part of the world requested the hand of that princess in marriage and the nuptials were celebrated with incredible magnificence the king hebe's father desired to take the field with a great army the wishes of his beautiful daughter caused him to succeed in all his enterprises and his kingdom was filled with such immense wealth that he became the most formidable of all the monarchs in the universe the divine hebe however weary of the bustle of the court was anxious to pass a few months in a pleasant mansion a short distance from the capital she had excluded from it all magnificence but everything about it was elegant and of a charming simplicity nature alone had taken care to embellish the walks which art had not been employed to form a wood the paths through which had something wild in their scenery intersected by rivulets and little torrents that formed natural cascades surrounded this beautiful retreat the youthful Hebe often walked in this solitary wood. One day, when her heart felt more than usually oppressed, with a tedium and lassitude to which she was now constantly subject, she endeavoured to ascertain the reason of it. She seated herself on the turf, beside a rivulet that with gentle murmur courted meditation. What sorrow is it, she asked herself, that comes thus to trouble the excess of my happiness? What princess in all the universe is blessed with a lot so perfect as mine? The beneficence of the fairy has accorded me all I wished for. I can heap treasures upon all who surround me. I am adored by all who behold me, and my heart is a stranger to every painful emotion. No, I cannot imagine whence arises the insupportable weariness which has for some time past detracted from the happiness of my life. The young princess was incessantly occupied by this reflection. At length she determined to go to the bank of Anguillette's river, and endeavour to obtain an interview with her. The fairy, accustomed to indulge her inclinations, appeared on the surface of the water. It happened to be one of the days when she was changed into a fish. "'It always gives me pleasure to see you, young princess,' said she to Hebe. "'I know you have been passing some time in a very solitary dwelling.' and you appear to me in a languishing state, which does not at all correspond with your good fortune. What hails you, Hebe? Confide in me. There is nothing the matter, replied the young princess, with some embarrassment. You have showered too many benefits upon me for anything to be wanting, to a felicity which is your own work. You would deceive me, rejoined the fairy. I see it easily. You are no longer satisfied. Yet what more can you desire? Deserve my favour by a frank confession, added the gracious fairy, and I promise you I will again fulfil your wishes. I know not what I wish, replied the charming Hebe, but nevertheless, she continued, casting down her beautiful eyes, I feel a lack of something, and that, whatever it may be, it is that which is absolutely essential to my happiness. Ah, exclaimed the fairy, it is love that you are sighing for. That passion alone could inspire you with such strange ideas. Dangerous disposition, continued the prudent fairy. 
you sigh for love, you shall experience it. Hearts are but too naturally disposed to be affected by it. But I warn you that you will vainly invoke me to deliver you from the fatal passion you believe to be so sweet a blessing. My power does not extend so far. I care not, quickly replied the princess, smiling and blushing at the same moment. Alas, of what value to me are all the gifts you have bestowed upon me, if I cannot in turn make with them the happiness of another? The fairy sighed at these words, and sank to the bottom of the river. Hebe traced her steps to the wilderness, her heart filled with a hope which already began to dissipate her melancholy. The warnings of the fairy caused her some anxiety, but her prudent reflections were soon banished by others as dangerous as they were agreeable. On reaching home she found a courier awaiting her with a message from the king, commanding her return to the court that very day, in order that she might be present at an entertainment in preparation for the succeeding one. She took her departure accordingly, a few hours after the receipt of the message, and returned to the court, where she was received with great pleasure by the king and queen, who informed her that a foreign prince, upon his travels, having arrived there a few days previously, they had determined to give him a fit, that he might talk in other countries of the magnificence displayed in their kingdom. The youthful Hebe, obeying a presentiment of which she was unconscious, first inquired of the princess, her sister, if the foreigner was handsome. I never yet saw any one that could be compared to him, answered the princess. Describe him to me, said Hebe with emotion. He is such as they paint heroes, replied Ilary. His form is graceful, his demeanour noble, his eyes are full of a fire that has already made more than one indifferent beauty of this court acknowledge their power. He has the finest head in the world, his hair is dark brown, and the moment he appears, he absorbs the attention of all beholders. You draw a most charming portrait of him, said the youthful Hebe. Is it not a little flattered? No, sister, replied the princess Ilary, with a sigh she could not suppress. Alas, you will find him perhaps but too worthy of admiration. The queen retired, and the beautiful Hebe, as soon as she had time to examine her heart, perceived that she had lost that tranquillity of which till now she had not known the value. Anguillette, she exclaimed, as soon as she was alone, alas, what is this object which you have allowed to present itself to my sight? Your prudent counsels are rendered vain by its presence. Why do you not give me strength enough to resist such attractive charms? It may be, however, that their power surpasses that of any fairy. Hebe slept but little that night. She rose very early, and the thought of how she should dress herself for the fete that evening occupied her the whole day, to a degree she had been previously a stranger to, for it was the first time she had felt an anxiety to please. The young foreigner, actuated by the same desire, neglected nothing that might make him appear agreeable to the eyes of the charming Hebe. The princess Ilary was equally solicitous of conquest. She possessed a thousand attractions, and when Hebe was not beside her, she was considered the most beautiful creature in the world, but Hebe outshone everyone. The queen gave a magnificent ball that evening. It was succeeded by a marvellous banquet. The young foreigner would have been struck by its prodigious splendour if he could have looked at anything besides Hebe. After the banquet, a novel and brilliant illumination shed another daylight over the palace gardens. It was summertime. The company descended into the gardens for the pleasure of an evening promenade. The handsome foreigner conducted the queen, but this honour did not compensate him 
for being deprived of the company of his princess, even for a few moments. The trees were decorated with festoons of flowers, and the lamps which formed the illumination were disposed in a manner to represent, in every direction, bows, arrows, and other weapons of Cupid, together in some places with inscriptions. The company entered a little grove, illuminated like the rest of the gardens, and the queen seated herself beside a pleasant fountain, around which had been arranged seats of turf, ornamented with garlands of pinks and roses. Whilst the queen was engaged in conversation with the king, and a host of courtiers that surrounded them, the princesses amused themselves by reading the sentences formed by small lamps under the various devices. The handsome foreigner was at that moment close to the beautiful Hebe. She turned her eyes towards a spot in which appeared a shower of darts, and read aloud these words which were displayed beneath them. Some are inevitable. They are those which are shot from the eyes of the divine Hebe, quickly added the prince, looking at her tenderly. The princess heard him, and felt confused. But the prince drew from her embarrassment a happy augury of his love, as it appeared unmingled with anger. The fete terminated with a thousand delightful novelties. The charms of the stranger had touched too sensibly the heart of Illyri for her to be long without perceiving that he loved another. The prince had paid her some attention previous to the arrival of Hebe at court, but since he had seen the latter, he had been wholly engrossed by his passion. In the meanwhile, the young stranger endeavoured, by every proof of affection, to touch the heart of the beautiful princess. He was devoted, amiable. Her fate compelled her to love, and the fairy abandoned her to the inclinations of her heart. What excuses for yielding? She could no longer struggle against herself. The charming stranger had informed her that he was the son of a king, and that his name was Atimir. This name was known to the princess. The prince had performed wonders in a war between the two kingdoms, and as they had always been opposed to each other, he had not chosen to appear at the court of Hebe's royal father under his real name. The young princess, after a conversation during which her heart fully imbibed the sweet and dangerous poison of which the fairy had warned her, gave permission to Atimir to disclose to the king his rank and his love. The young prince was transported with delight. He flew to the king's apartments, and urged his suit with all the eloquence his love could inspire him with. The king conducted him to the queen. This proposed marriage, assuring the establishment of a lasting peace between the two kingdoms, the hand of the beautiful Hebe was promised to her happy lover as soon as he had received the consent of the king, his father. The news was soon circulated, and the princess Illyri suffered anguish equal to her jealousy. She wept, she groaned, but it was necessary to control her emotion and conceal her vain regrets. The beautiful Hebe and Atimir now saw each other continually. Their affection increased daily, and in those happy days the princess could not imagine why the fairies did not employ all their skills to make mortals fall in love when they wished, to ensure their felicity. An ambassador from Atimir's royal father arrived at court. He had been awaited with the utmost impatience. He was the bearer of the required consent, and preparations were immediately commenced for the celebration of those grand nuptials. Atimir had therefore no longer any reason for anxiety, a dangerous state for a lover one desires to retain faithful. As soon as the prince felt certain of his happiness, he became less ardent. One day that he was on his way to meet the fair Hebe in the palace gardens, he heard the voices of females in conversation in a bower of honeysuckles. He caught the sound of his name, 
and this awakened his curiosity to know more. He approached the bower softly, and easily recognised the voice of the Princess Illyrie. "'I shall die before that fatal day, my dear Cleonice,' said she to a young person seated beside her. "'The gods will not permit me to behold the ungrateful object of my love united to the too fortunate Hebe. My torments are too keen to endure much longer.' "'But, madam,' replied her female companion, "'Prince Atimir is not faithless. He has never avowed love for you. Destiny alone is to blame for your misfortunes.' and amongst all the princes who adore you, you might find, perhaps, one more amiable than he is, did not a fatal prepossession engross your heart. More amiable than him, rejoined Illyrie. Is there such a being in the universe? Powerful fairy, she added with a sigh, of all the blessings with which you have laden the fortunate Hebe, I but covet that of Atomir's devoted attachment to her. The words of the princess were interrupted by her tears, Ah, how happy would she have been had she known how much those tears had moved the heart of Atimir. She rose to leave the bower, and the prince hid himself behind some trees to escape observation. The tears and the love of Valeri had affected him deeply, but he imagined they were but the emotions of pity which he felt for a beautiful princess whom he had unintentionally made so miserable. He proceeded to join Hebe, and the contemplation of her charms banished for the moment all other thoughts from his mind. In passing through the gardens, as he returned with the princess Hebe to the palace, he trod upon something which attracted his attention. He picked it up and found it was a set of magnificent tablets. It was not far from the bower in which he had overheard the conversation of Illyri and her attendant. He feared if Hebe saw the tablets, she would obtain some knowledge of his adventure. He hid them, therefore, without her having observed them. She happened at that moment to be occupied in readjusting some ornament in her headdress. That evening Illyrie did not make her appearance in the Queen's apartments. It was reported that she had felt indisposed on returning from her walk. Atomir perfectly understood that her object was to conceal the agitation to which he had seen her a prey in the bower of honeysuckles. This reflection increased his compassion for her. As soon as he had retired to his own chamber, he opened the tablets he had picked up. On the first leaf he saw a cipher, formed of a double A, crowned with a wreath of myrtle, and supported by two little cupids, one of whom appeared to be wiping the tears from his cheeks with the end of the ribbon that bandaged his eyes, and the other breaking his arrows. The sight of this cipher agitated the young prince. He knew that Illyri drew admirably. He turned over the leaf quickly to gain further information and on the opposite side found the following lines. Hither all-conquering love thy footsteps led, at thy first glance sweet peace my bosom fled. O cruel one, to try on me the dart with which you meant to wound another's heart. The handwriting which he recognised, but too clearly, proved to him that the tablets were those of the Princess Illyri. He was affected by the great tenderness of these sentiments, which, far from being nourished by his love and attentions, were not even encouraged by hope. These verses reminded him that previous to the arrival of Hebe at court, he had thought Illyrie lovely. He began to consider himself unfaithful to that princess, and he became too seriously so to the charming Hebe. He struggled, however, against these first emotions, but his heart was accustomed to range, and so dangerous a habit is rarely corrected. He threw Illyrie's tablets on a table, 
resolving not to look at them any more. But he took them up again a moment afterwards, despite himself, and found in them a thousand things which completed the triumph of Illyri over the divine Hebe. The prince's heart was occupied all night by conflicting feelings. In the morning he waited on the king, who named the day he had fixed on for his marriage with Hebe. Atimir replied with an embarrassment which the king mistook for a proof of his passion. How little do we know of the human heart? It was the effect of his inconstancy. The king desired to visit the queen. The prince was obliged to follow him. He had been there but a short time when the princess Illyri appeared with an air of melancholy which made her more lovely in the eyes of the inconstant Atimir, who was aware of its cause. He approached her and talked to her for some time. He gave her to understand that he was no longer ignorant of her affection for him. He spoke with ardour of his feelings for her. It was too much for Illyri. Ah, how is it possible to receive calmly the assurance of so great, so unexpected a happiness? The charming Hebe entered the queen's apartments shortly afterwards. Her sight brought the blood into the cheeks both of the princess Illyri and of the fickle Atimir. How beautiful she is! exclaimed Illyri, looking at the prince with an emotion she could not conceal. Avoid her, sir, or end at once my existence. The prince had not power to answer her. Hebe approached them with a grace and charm which unconsciously loaded with reproaches the ungrateful Atimir. He could not long endure his position. He quitted the princess, saying that he was anxious to dispatch a courier to his father. She was so prepossessed in his favour that she never noticed some eloquent glances at Illyri, which he cast on leaving her. While Illyri triumphed in secret, the beautiful Hebe learned from the king and queen that in three days she was to be the bride of Atimir. How unworthy was he of the sensations which this news awakened in the heart of the lovely Hebe. The faithless prince, though preoccupied by his new passion, passed part of the day in Hebe's company. Illyri was present, and was a thousand times ready to die with jealousy. Her love had redoubled since she had entertained hope. On returning to his own apartments in the evening, the prince was presented with a note by an unknown messenger. He opened it hastily, and found in it these words. I yield to a passion a thousand times stronger than my reason. Since I can no longer attempt to conceal sentiments which chance has revealed to you, come, prince, come, and learn the determination to which I am driven by the love you have inspired me with. Oh, how happy will it be for me if it cost me but my life. The bearer of the note informed the prince that he was commissioned to conduct him to the spot where the princess Illyri awaited him. Atimir did not hesitate a moment to follow him, and after several turnings he was introduced into a little pavilion at the end of a very dark avenue. The interior of the pavilion was sufficiently lighted. He found in it Illyri with one of her attendants. The rest were walking in the gardens. When she had retired to this apartment, no one entered it without her orders. Illyri was seated on a pile of cushions of crimson and gold embroidery. Her dress was rich and elegant, the material being of yellow and silver tissue. Her hair, which was black and exceedingly beautiful, was ornamented with ribbons of the same colour as the dress, and ties of yellow diamonds. At her sight, Atimir could not persuade himself that infidelity was a crime. He knelt at her feet, and Illyri, gazing upon him with a tenderness sufficiently indicative of the emotion of her heart, said, Prince, I have not caused you to come hither in order to persuade you to break off your marriage. I know too well it is determined upon, 
and the expressions with which you have endeavoured to alleviate my misfortune and flatter my affection do not induce me to believe that you would abandon Hebe for me. But, she continued, with a gush of tears, which completed the conquest of the heart of Atimir, I will not endure the life which you have rendered so wretched. I will sacrifice it without regret to my love. And this poison, she added, showing a little box which she had in her hand, will save me from the fearful torment of seeing you the husband of Hebe. No, beautiful Illyrie, exclaimed the fickle prince, I will never be her husband. I will abandon all for your sake. I love you a thousand times better than I loved Hebe. And despite my duty and my faith so solemnly plighted, I am ready to fly with you to a spot where no obstacle shall exist to our happiness. Ah, prince, said Illyrie with a sigh, can I confide then in one so faithless? He will never be faithless to you, rejoined Atimir, and the king, your father, who gave Hebe to me, will not refuse to sanction my union with the lovely Illyrie when she is already mine. Away then, Atimir, said the princess, after a few minutes' silence. Let us hasten whither our destiny leads us. Whatever misery the step entails on me, nothing can weigh against the sweet delights of loving and being beloved. After these words they consulted together respecting their flight. There was no time to lose. They determined to depart the following night. They separated with regret, and, notwithstanding the vows of Atimir, Illyri still feared the power of Hebe's attractions. The rest of that night and all the next day she was a prey to that anxiety. In the meanwhile the prince hurriedly gave all the necessary orders for keeping his departure secret, and the next day, as soon as everybody in the palace had retired to their apartments, he hastened to join Illyri in the pavilion in the garden, where she awaited him, attended only by Cleonice. They set out and made incredible haste to pass the frontiers of the kingdom. The following morning the news was made public by a letter which Illyri had written to the queen, and another which Atimir had addressed to the king. They were couched in touching language, and it was easy to perceive that love had dictated them. The king and queen were extremely enraged, but no words can express the agony of the unfortunate and charming Hebe. What despair! What tears! What petitions to the fairy Anguillette to terminate torments equal to the most cruel she had predicted. But the fairy kept her word. In vain did Hebe seek the riverside. Anguillette did not appear, and she abandoned herself to all the horrors of desperation. The princes, who had been discouraged by the success of the ungrateful Atomir, now felt their hopes revise. But their attentions and professions only increased the torture of the faithful Hebe. The king ardently desired that she should select for herself a husband, and had several times urged her to do so. But that duty appeared too cruel to her affectionate heart. She determined to fly from her father's kingdom, but before her departure she went once more in search of Anguillette. The fairy could no longer resist the tears of the beautiful Hebe. She appeared to her, and at her sight the princess wept still more, and had not the power to speak to her. You have now experienced, said the fairy, what that fatal pleasure which I would never willingly have accorded to you is. But Atimir has too severely punished you, Hebe, for your neglect of my advice. Go, fly these scenes where everything recalls to you the remembrance of your love. You will find a vessel on the coast which will bear you to the only spot in the world 
where you can be cured of your unfortunate attachment. But take care, added Anguillette, raising her voice, when your heart shall have regained its tranquillity, that you never seek to behold again the faithless Atimir, or it will cost you your life. Hebe wished more than once to see that prince again, at whatever price love might compel her to pay for that gratification. But a whisper of reason and respect for her own honour induced her to accept the fairy's offer. She thanked her for this last favour, and departed the next morning for the sea-coast, followed by such of her women as she had most confidence in. She found the vessel Anguillette had promised her. It was gilt all over. The masts were of marquetry of the most admirable pattern, the sails of rose-colour and silver tissue, and in every part of it was inscribed the word Liberty. The crew were attired in dresses of the same colours as the sails. All appeared to breathe in this atmosphere the sweet air of freedom. The princess entered a magnificent cabin. The furniture was admirable and the paintings perfect. She was as much a prey to sorrow in this new abode as she was in her father's court. They strove in vain to amuse her by a thousand pleasures. She was not yet in a state of mind to pay the slightest attention to them. One day, while she was contemplating a painting in her cabin, which represented a landscape, she remarked in it a young shepherd, who, with a smiling countenance, was depicted cutting nets to set at liberty a great number of birds that had been caught in them, and some of these little creatures seemed to be soaring to the skies with marvellous velocity. All the other pictures displayed similar subjects. None suggested an idea of love, and all appeared to boast the charms of liberty. Alas, exclaimed the princess sorrowfully, will my heart never enjoy that sweet happiness which reason prays for so often in vain? End of section 9 End of Anguillette, part 1